0: To you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 103 verses 1 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Let us do so now uh, by singing together hymn 81. Please be seated. And let us pray together. Great God in heaven, we thank you again this morning for the hour of worship and indeed the day of worship. It's, it's good to, to, to read Luther's hymn, Lord Sabaoth. That is your name. And that was your name in the Old Testament. And uh, of course, you would say that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, just declaring the same truth. Uh, you are the ruler of creation, and you are the ruler of our lives. And so you are the ruler of this day, the Sabbath day. May we confess to you, O God, our desire to keep the Sabbath. May we confess at the same time our own, our own perplexities as to this or that question. Uh, God, uh, we have less direction, less guidance in the in the new covenant as to uh, what is prohibited on the Sabbath. But we are clear about this one thing. And that is your desire that we would commune with yourself and that we might find on this day great reason uh, to rejoice because it was the day that Christ was raised. And we look forward to singing such hymns uh, in, in the hour to come. Uh, Jesus Christ, we find in you salvation, which is worth rejoicing in. It is a salvation which is abiding and perfect. It is a salvation which uh, none can replace and no one can outdo. No one can outperform your work. The Old Testament saying could never say that he could never look at his priest and say, I have the best priest, but we can. He could never look at the priest and say, here is my guarantee. Here is my assurance. Here is a perfect work I can rest in. But we can. We can rest satisfied in Jesus Christ. And, and the great wonder of, of the Christian experience and of the gospel is that we keep on finding that out more and more. And God, we long to learn that more and more. We long to grow in our understanding of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It is in many ways an unfamiliar idea to us. But is it possible, oh God, because of that, because we are not raised up in the Jewish way of thinking, that we are only impoverishing our own appreciation of our Savior? Oh, that we would see him in his priesthood, just as he is presented in the book of Hebrews. And in a sense, we realize that he's only beginning to make the argument because he says they're dull of hearing. And so the reality is he wished to give a much, much richer treatment of the subject. And yet we can say, perhaps because we're just as dull as they were, what a rich treatment it is, what a challenging one it is. How great is our need to learn of Christ's priesthood? And Father, we pray that you would teach us and we pray that we would recognize and find in the sinner needs for his salvation, which includes not only sin, which is pardoned forever, but it includes an ongoing priestly work forever. Now, that is a wonderful truth, and that is something we hope to begin to explore this morning. The the, the always of Christ's pri- priestly ministry. There's a once for all, but there's also an always. He doesn't need to give sacrifices day after day. He did that forevermore. But he does always stand in heaven as a priest, and he does always live to make intercession for those who seek to draw near to God through him. And so, God, may we confess to you this morning that we do seek to draw near to you through him. And pray that our worship and our lives would be marked by nearness to God, not by distance. We ask you, Holy Father, that we would deal with Your Holiness directly, not as those who have any right to do so, uh, or, or even finding in our flesh any inclination to do so, but because in Christ we find a sufficient reason to do so. In fact, uh, we are just uh, we are just shunning Him in this priesthood. We are denying the priestly power and efficacy of his blood if we do anything but draw near. Jesus, you have opened the way. May we have the faith to enter in. And may our lives once more be marked by nearness and communion with God. Lord, the reality as we recognize from our New Testaments is that the conception of the Christian life is one that is simply glorious. And it is, as we'll see in the evening, one which is being transformed uh, by degrees from glory to glory as we behold the glory of God. What a rich and glorious privilege we have. We only pray that we might make use of it. And we pray that we might have eyes to see it. Because we also realize that at times we spurn the work of the Spirit in us. And we deny his saving influence on our lives. That in reality as Christians we are growing. And that our light is shining. And, and, and we are too quick to say otherwise. Give us faith to see, O oh God, not only salvation and a bleeding Savior but also salvation in the Holy Spirit dwelling in a sinner such as ourselves or a brother. Let us rejoice in the work of salvation, though the sin remains. It is subdued, but it doesn't go away. None of us are free from sin. And yet even in the the presence of such a a compromised witness, we might say, the light is shining, amazing to think. And God's power is being perfected in human weakness. Oh, that we might see it, Lord. Lord. By faith, just as, again, we are able to see the power and the wisdom of God on display in a bleeding savior. And so, oh, God, we pray the same for the worship which is before us, things which are not of no account in the eyes of the world and in our less spiritual moments of no account to ourselves. Is it possible that we think the sermon is boring or that we think that uh, the distribution of the elements is boring and of no account? The reality is the flesh thinks these things. And and of what value is a song except for its beauty? But of what spiritual value it has to the unspiritual man, it is none. God, we are looking for real spiritual value and spiritual truths. As Paul says, the spiritual man discerns all things and he's discerned by no one. That is, he understands. He is able to perceive the glory of Christ in something as weak and contemptible as a little piece of bread and a cup of wine. What could be of, of, of smaller account? And the reality, as we see from the early church, is that Christians have been inclined to despise these things and to treat them as no account, or the preaching, or even our fellow Christian who's sitting beside us. But the glory of the gospel is shining forth in these things. And might we see it and take it to heart and draw encouragement and to go on in our faith. God, in essence, our prayer is just this. Help us in our worship, weak and feeble, though we are. But then as we close our prayer, we uh, remember those words you taught us to pray. Now saying together, our father who art in heaven, give us thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, as a scripture reading, I want to look at an earlier passage in Hebrews and notice uh, a parallel that, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I never noticed. And I wonder whether you've ever noticed and that is the way in which God uh, makes an oath to Abraham and appointing Christ as a son, or, or as a priest rather, he, he makes it by an oath as well. And so the presence of an oath and the promise given to Abraham and the appointment of Christ to priest forever, in order to see that parallel we have to look at the first side of it, Hebrews chapter 6 verses 9 through 20, and notice the importance of the oath. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation that we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would find or would have uh, strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Those two things being the word and then the word of oath. The two things pointing to the unchangeableness of his purpose. He goes on this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And now let us respond to God's word by standing and singing together the doxology. Please be seated and turn with me, please, to the back of your hymnals. Now is our Psalter selection, uh, number 31, page 630, Psalm 66. I'll read the unbolded. And together we'll read the bolded Psalm 66. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. Come and see the works of God. He is terrible in his doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Oh, bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard which holdeth our soul in life and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net, thou laidst affliction upon our loins. Thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Come and hear all ye that fear God and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth. And he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily, God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. And let us bless the Lord now by standing together and singing him 207. Seated, I had thought that we would uh, conclude our study of chapter seven today, uh, but really, I think uh, we have another unit that is self-contained, ending with a clear, uh, a clear point of application, which actually, interestingly, mirrors verse nineteen. Verse nineteen. Uh, on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We have the same point being made in verse 25. Uh, and so I I, uh, I think that we'll just end at verse 25 and perhaps take the next three verses on their own. So Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 25. Looking again at the way in which Christ is able or enables us, I should say, to draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest, forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And as I say, we'll leave it there for now. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we recognize the difficulty of this great subject, Christ, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, But Lord, we're eager to learn about it. We're eager for you to shine light on your word and to help us to take these things to heart and to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. Again, we pray, O Holy Spirit, illumine your word for our benefit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was out of the pulpit last week, as you know, but uh, before that, we had considered in two sermons... Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and then verses 11 through 19, uh, the idea of Christ and, and what it means to speak of Christ as a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That is uh, what he ends with at the end of chapter 6, where Jesus has entered, uh, speaking of heaven, as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That is a quotation from Psalm 110, verse 4, Uh, Which we find again quoted in verse 21 of our verse. He is expounding upon that idea. He is telling us the way in which that prophetic word. Is fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Which is not confined as we will see to his earthly life here. uh, But it extends forever into his heavenly life. This is. Uh, I think we would agree, and I think I've said in each of the sermons thus far, a highly interesting study, but also admittedly a highly difficult one. The difficulty about which uh, he is not in in, in any doubt or in confusion. Uh, He does not pretend the subject is easy, having said in chapter 5, verse 10, that Christ was designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Having quoted it in chapter 5, verse 6, he has to set the, the idea aside because he says Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. He acknowledges the difficulty. Let us acknowledge the difficulty. I, I told you all, I think, uh, that chapter 7 was the chapter that stood in the way of, of any desire of mine to preach Hebrews for a very long time. I acknowledge the difficulty. We should acknowledge the difficulty. And so maybe you'll tell me afterwards, boy, that's difficult. And I'll just say, so it is. <laughs> uh, so it is. But it is also, we should say, a highly edifying subject, Uh, far more perhaps than we ever thought it could be. So much of uh, what he is offering to us, I I won't even say so much, let me correct my statement. All of what he is offering to us hinges upon the priesthood of Christ. He is telling us to reach higher as Christians. He is setting uh, before us in our earthly pilgrimage on to the heavenly rest, chapters 3 and 4th, Uh, Chapters 3 and 4, the goal of not only entering that rest, but even before then of attaining, chapter 6, verse 10, to the full assurance of hope until the end. He doesn't want us to be wavering back and forth, but to be reaching up in faith even as we press on to heaven. And the way in which he bolsters that argument and helps us to see the way in which we get there and the way in which we have a full assurance of hope until the end is by setting before us the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so we're still asking the question and answering the question, what kind of priest do we have in Jesus? We know the kind of priest we have in the Old Testament, and much of the argument is devoted to explaining that to us, since uh, we as Gentile Christians are less familiar. Uh, But the the great thing we need to see is the kind of priest we have in Jesus, using the language of chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. And certain ideas about the priesthood are necessary. We need to see, for instance, that he's a priest like all the rest. Chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That is the life of the priest, every bit as much for Christ as it was the priest of the old covenant. And we find this sort of argument being made uh, throughout chapters 2 through 5. While at the same time recognizing, and this really is what becomes the argument in chapter 7 through 10, his essential difference from all the other priests, what it is that sets Jesus Christ apart, making him uh, a better priest and a better mediator of a better covenant. We, uh, we just saw in verse 12 of the prior passage that in Christ the priesthood is changed. And so there was also a change in law also. His priesthood is not, uh, he tells us, according to the order of Aaron, but it's according to the order of Melchizedek. He descended not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah as the son of David, equipping him to become not only uh, a priest, but a priest-king, just as was promised in Psalm 110. But what is, what is really important to see here, uh, and becomes the emphasis of the present verses, though it was something we've seen already, Is the eternity of his priesthood. Not so much the according to the order of Melchizedek. But the forever of that phrase. That he is a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. That word, that single word. The way in which he holds his priesthood forever. Becomes the real focus here. Of the verses, the six verses we are considering. And it is that aspect of his priesthood. That makes him so unlike. And so much better than the priests of old. And it is on this basis that our confidence and our assurance to draw nigh are based, as we will see. And I want uh, to, to apply this thought a little bit before we actually look at the argument that's being made here. And uh, to make this assertion to you, as Christian people, that so much of our happiness as Christians depends upon our views of Christ. Not only how we deal with him, but how we regard him. And so let me ask you again, do you know what kind of priest that you have in Jesus? Do you have clear views of Christ and his priesthood? If you consider the arguments as they've been made in chapter 2 and chapter 4, he tells us that our ability to draw near depends upon our knowledge of Christ in his priesthood and understanding what he is offering to us in his priesthood, namely the ability to draw nigh through him. But if we were to turn the argument around, we should also realize that apart from such a clear view of Christ in his priesthood, understanding his life as a priest and what his life is, uh, what his priesthood consists of. Apart from this, the earnest soul will find little reason and little confidence to draw near to God. His whole life in religious, religious experience will be marked not by nearness to God, but by distance And not only that, but uncertainty as well as to his standing with God, which is, as we saw last time, essentially the life of the Old Testament saint. That was his essential plight, that he was not near but distant from God and that he lacked assurance, finding none in the Old Testament priesthood. But better things are offered to the believer through Christ's priesthood, which is the argument here, namely confidence, boldness, frequent access and nearness to the throne of grace. The believer in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Hebrews, if we understand the argument, is conceived as one who lives near to God, who constantly, daily through prayer, draws near to the throne of grace, who is frequent in his dealings with God. Who lives a life as John Owen says. Very simply of communion with God. Not of distance but of nearness. And we ought to recognize that Jesus Christ is the one. Who makes that possible. And more and more as we seek to deal with God through him. Not only in our justification. But in all of the Christian life. More and more we will find that heaven is open to us. And that we as sinners are able to deal with the holy things of heaven. Enjoying. A full assurance of hope unto the end. And so as I say. Our happiness as Christians depends upon clear views of Christ and his priesthood. And if our experience does not match what I've been describing. Namely one of constant or frequent access to God. Or nearness to God. Then I think perhaps we have the the reason why. It's because we lack a clear knowledge of our savior and his priesthood. And we are seeking by some other way and some other means to deal with God. Well, consider the argument then that we have in these verses, having applied them in advance. There are four arguments and really four words that uh, describe what he's saying here about Christ's priesthood. And the first word is oath. He's continuing on uh, in the first place. As we come to verse 20, with what was said in the prior verse, he's speaking of uh, verse 18, that the former commandment was set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19, on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. He's contrasting the old priesthood and the new priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he's telling us about the old priests in verse 20 and 21, that they became priests without an oath, pointing to their temporary standing in the priesthood. Speaking of Jesus, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, his priesthood is not without an oath. For they, he says, on the other hand, became priests without an oath. Them them without, him not without. Them without, thus temporary. He not without, thus forever. The point is simple, pointing to the presence of an oath. And In a moment we'll turn to chapter 6 and see the way this functions. Nothing stands forever without an oath. But with an oath, there is certainty based upon an unbreakable promise, supposing God is the one who's made it. If you go back uh, to what was said uh, in chapter six, which we read earlier, we see the promise which God made to Abraham in doing this, he swore by an oath Uh, swearing by himself since he could swear by nothing greater than himself that he would surely perform everything that he had promised and the takeaway from this if I were to just summarize those verses rather than read them again is that in this promise God was establishing an arrangement that would stand forever in fact if you go to Galatians 3 you see that whatever God promised to Abraham he does not set aside when he gives the law to Moses There is something bigger, there is something more permanent in the promise that was given to Abraham. And what God underscores, or the way God underscores this, is by swearing to Abraham, I will surely do this. So that he says, by two, or, or, or no, verse 17, desiring to show the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath. By declaring by an oath that he would do all that he promised Abraham, he says, these things will stand forever. They will not change. They will never be set aside. But you will look in vain in the Old Testament priesthood and find such an oath. They were given, they were appointed without an oath. But what happened with Abraham came with an oath. And when Jesus was appointed a priest, he was appointed by an oath. If you look at what is said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the full statement of Psalm 110 verse four. In appointing the son, he appoints him by a solemn oath. That doesn't mean, let me just say, that God's other promises have no validity. It only means that they addressed a temporary situation. God never promised or swore that the Old Testament priest would stand forever. That they would hold their priesthood forever. He only provided that they should each minister to their own generation as long as they should live. But obviously, something greater is involved when God swears by an oath that he will perform something. And so because Christ came into his, appoint, his priesthood not only by divine appointment, but by a solemn divine oath, as we discover in Psalm 110. We recognize something greater is involved in his priesthood, something permanent, something abiding, a priesthood that would stand forever, a priesthood that would never be set aside or replaced for another. In declaring and appointing Jesus Christ, the priest forever, God was declaring his eternal purpose concerning his son, an eternal office that he would hold forever. Declaring once more with Christ as with Abraham, the unchangeableness of his purpose. As I swear this day, he says to Christ, I will not change my mind. There will be no priest after you. But that brings to the second, brings us to the second thought in verse 22. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And in fact, the second and third thoughts are both found in that verse. Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. Let us deal with each in turn. The second thought and the first that we find in that verse is that of a covenant. That's the second word. And of this covenant, we are told it is better. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And as far as I can tell, this is the first time that we have the language of covenant used in the book of Hebrews. Perhaps I missed it. Perhaps you can tell me uh, there actually the word occurs in an earlier chapter. I couldn't find it. But it does become here, especially in chapter 8, as we'll quickly uh as we'll quickly arrive there, it becomes a major theme. Uh, this new arrangement that Jesus brings described as a new covenant. Again, as I say, you find that in chapter 8, with him quoting Jeremiah, chapter 31. The question uh, which we have is in what sense does his priesthood bring with it a better covenant? Well, for one thing, as we'll see in chapter 8, verse 6, that he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. It's a better covenant because it brings with it better promises. Or if you look again at what is said in chapter Uh, Chapter seven, verses 18 and 19, you again see the contrast in covenants without the language of covenant. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Those are the things that mark the old covenant for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Again, he's speaking of what he here explicitly states as a better Covenant. And the thought here is that in speaking of a covenant, Jesus priesthood brings about a new arrangement or a new situation where we are enabled by his priesthood to draw near to God. No longer do we seek to deal with God as the Jews of old through the Old Testament priesthood marked by weakness and uh, and uselessness. But now we seek to deal with God through the strength of his ministry and his priesthood. So Christ in his priesthood represents a new order and a new covenant. And the hallmark of this covenant, as we will see again and again throughout chapters 7 through 10, in stark contrast to the, the life and the experience of the Old Testament saints under the Old Testament priesthood, is that he, by his blood, opens to us a new and living way by which we are able to draw near to God continually. Continually. How unlike that was the Old Testament where you had the, The the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies once a year. Now every believer through Christ's blood is able to enter in at any time. Into heaven itself. Not the temple which was just a pattern of heaven. All of these things we will unfold in the chapters to come. We should simply recognize here. That in bringing in a new priest. He brought with him a new and a better covenant. But then the second thought that we find in this verse. and the third point of the sermon. The really important thing that is being stressed here is the relation he holds to the covenant and that is of this covenant he is the guarantee or to use the language of the Westminster Confession chapter 8 section 3 he is a surety and so oath covenant surety that's the third idea as I say the confession uses that word and so I'll use it as well but it's the same word and the same idea verse 22 so much the more also Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. To use the idea and the language uh, without reading it of chapter 8, section 3 of the Westminster Confession, what is meant here is that he is furnished in his person and in his office to bring about a better covenant. He is equipped by the Father and he is, ina- he is able, based upon who he is as the Son of God, to perform every task and to fulfill every law of this priesthood and to do so perfectly, thus bringing in a perfect salvation. Speaking of him uh, more narrowly as the surety means that he is the one who guarantees that every promise of the new covenant will come into full and exact fulfillment. That is to say, he is the one who guarantees that it will never be annulled or set aside. Which is fundamentally unlike the old covenant. There was no one in the old covenant who held the office of a surety. But as we look upon Christ and his priesthood. We behold him as our surety. Again, as the one who guarantees that all that was promised will come into fulfillment. And not a single one of those promises, nor his priesthood, will ever be set aside. That the new covenant will stand forever. But that, of course, leads us to ask the question, how he does so? How does he execute the office of a surety? And a surety of a better covenant. And that is the question which we find answered in verses 23-23 and 24. The basic argument is that he is our surety because he holds his priesthood permanently, which again we notice places him in a different category than the priests of the Old Testament verse 23, having said that he's become the surety of a better covenant verse 22, he says in verse 23, the former priests on the on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing it was obvious from this, uh, this situation that their priesthood lacked stability. That in their priestly work, they guaranteed nothing. There were so many of them because none of them were capable of continuing in his office. And even then, each of them died and were succeeded by others. There was no possibility in this situation to look at any one of these priests and be guaranteed of anything. But Jesus, he says, on the other hand, because he continues forever, that is because he is himself an eternal person, the very son of God, which again reminds us that before we ever come to consider Jesus in his, his office as a priest, beginning in chapter two of, of the book of Hebrews, we must consider him uh, in his eternal sonship, chapter one. Who is the person who assumes this office? It's Jesus Christ, the son of God, the eternal son of God. Because that is who holds this office, we are considering. He holds his office permanently. The one who holds this office is an eternal person. Even the Son of God. Jesus, on the other hand, he says, verse 24, because he continues forever. Because his person is an eternal person. Holds his priesthood permanently. You see, the same situation that prevented the Old Testament priests from offering any certainty or stability under the Old Covenant is not there with Christ. Death is no obstacle to his priesthood, even though it was the ultimate obstacle to the Old Testament priesthood. We read in verse 23 that they were prevented by death from continuing, not so of Christ. It was no obstacle of his priesthood. It did not prevent him from continuing. In fact, as we'll later see in verse 27 when it is said that he offered up himself, speaking of uh, his his priestly death. We discover that his death on the cross actually constitutes the hallmark of his priestly ministry. That by death he offered himself up once for all for the sins of his people. But death was not the end of his existence. Still less was it the end of his priesthood. His death, as Hugh Martin says... Was full of priestly action as he on the cross offered himself for us. So that in his death he was putting forth priestly power. He was exercising priestly agency. A power and an agency by which he once more offered up himself. In other words, as we behold Christ on the cross. We behold him in his priesthood. And we discover in this. That there his life was not taken from him, but that it was offered by him. As Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18, that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it, I take it up again. By which we understand that the same power by which he takes his life up again in the resurrection is also present when he lays it down. In death, he is not the victim. He is the agent. He was the one who gave up his own soul. It was not taken from him. Death was his doing. And this is a point I hope to go into much further in sermons to come, especially the one to come. As we look at verse 27. But my only point here is just that we would recognize how death did not prevent him from continuing to hold his priesthood and his office forever. But as he died, he was as active In his priesthood, and he was as full of priestly agency there as at any other moment. And if death was his action, if it was something he wanted and something he did, if he died, as Hugh Martin says, not by death's will, but by his own, then that means obviously that his death did not prevent him from continuing. Even as he dies, he takes up his life again and he goes into heaven where he holds his priesthood permanently. All of these together are aspects of his priestly work. And because this is so, because there is nothing that can prevent him from continuing in his office, he is our surety. team. He becomes the surety of a better covenant in as much as he holds his office permanently. Verse 22. And so long as he stands as a priest of this covenant, which is to say forever, the salvation which he offers is certain to all who draw near to God through him. But that leads to the fourth and the final point. What it is that makes this certain is not only that he holds his priesthood forever. But that in this capacity he makes a constant work of intercession for them, which is the fourth word, intercession. Thus he is able, we read, to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession. And here I want to ask the question, what does this intercession consist of? The second part of verse 25. He always lives to make intercession for them. Before we consider the assurance this gives us stated the first part of the verse. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Again, this is a theme that we will begin to explore in detail. The intercession of Christ as he stands in heaven. But for the most part, have not considered thus far, just just as the other ideas, especially that of the covenant and surety. We have found Jesus as our priest at the throne of grace ready to help us in chapters 2 and 4. We see there how his heart goes out to the believer in his priestly office. But we have yet to consider him as he is there in his priestly action toward the Father. The way in which he is a priest stands there on behalf of the people for them. We read in chapter 5, verse 1, Appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God, obligated verse three to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, as he stands on behalf of the people, his ministry is directed toward the Father, as it was with every priest. Again, uh, chapter five, verse one, chapter two, verse seventeen, I just read chapter five, verse one, chapter two, verse seventeen. He, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That is on behalf of the people in things pertaining to, to God, to bring propitiation for the sins of the people. If we were to ask what is the direction, what is the focus, or if I may put it this way, what direction the gaze of the Savior uh, is in heaven, it is toward the Father. And so we ask the question as he's there before the throne, what is he doing? The answer is he's making intercession. That is his priestly action by which he puts forth his priestly agency. It consists not of his heart and his help. uh, Not only, I should say, of his heart and his help going out to the believer from heaven, but also of a constant work of intercession before the throne of grace. There in heaven as our great high priest, he always lives to make intercession for the people. And there are several comments concerning this intercession that can be made here. Uh, and again, we're only beginning to explore it. The first is that it is an intercession we know which he performs by divine appointment. Don't lose sight of that beloved. It was God who appointed him a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It was God who desired that Christ in his priesthood should make intercession for the sins of the people. In other words, we need to lay aside once and for all the notion that Christ in his intercession is there pleading that the father would perform something that he is not inclined to perform. He is begging the father to be merciful when the father is inclined to show wrath. That is not What we mean by intercession Christ as he stands there stands there only because the father deemed and swore forever that he should stand there. Do not see him as persuading or twisting the arm of the father. Oh father be merciful look at all that I've done will you not pardon them. That is not a proper view of the priesthood and the priestly intercession of Jesus Christ which is directed toward God the father. That is to describe the heart and the will of the father in a way that is totally unscriptural and that misses the whole point. Do you know what he's pleading at the throne of grace? He is pleading only what he pled in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was about to take up the great act of offering himself. Oh, father, thy will be done. Thy will be done. That is the work of intercession that he gives. And so the son, as he stands before the father, just as the son, as he pleads to the father before he goes to the cross, is there because the the father desires that he should be there. It is the father's will that he is performing and that he prays he would have the strength to perform fully to the uttermost. The father desires to show mercy in the son. And if I might say so, to do so in the most glorious way conceivable, there is no grander way for the father to propitiate his wrath toward the sinner and to show mercy to the sinner and to justify the sinner and to open the way for the sinner to enter into his presence than by the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I can only hope that by the end of chapter 10, once we've considered it in detail, you would agree with that. But what we notice in the work of intercession, since it comes by divine appointment, is not the fundamental disharmony. Between the father and the son. In their disposition to the sinner. But we notice rather the harmony that exists between the father and the son. The glory of that union that exists between them. As one God shines forth to us in a way. That nothing else could possibly reveal. The son and the father are one in their desire to bring in this better covenant. And the work of intercession reveals this as much as anything else. Second. Concerning this intercession, we also see uh, the relation that exists between him and his own. Not just the relation that he sustains to the Father, but to the people from whom he was taken and for whom he stands as an intercessor. Those, we read in verse 25, who draw near to God through him. It is for them, again, verse 25, that he always lives to make intercession Just as it was for them that he becomes a priest and suffers and dies. He does not stand there in heaven as an intercessor because he needs to do so. He does so because he desires to save. He along with the father. His priesthood uh, then, as we've seen, rests on a personal relation between him and his sheep. Those whom he represents. And nowhere is that thought expressed as strongly as it is here in verse 25. Considering Christ in the work of intercession as he stands in heaven, presenting his work to the father, he does so for them. They are his sheep, as he expresses in John chapter 10, those who hear his voice and who know him and who seek to draw near to God through him and not in any other way. It is for them that he lays down his life and for no others. And because this relation exists between Christ and his sheep, a personal relation, their place in heaven before the throne is secured by his. They are able to draw near to God through him because he is there for them. One who is not weak and ineffectual like the priests of old, but one who holds his priesthood permanently. As we find him there, we should think not only of the relation he sustains to the father, but also the relation he sustains to us. But third... We must also realize that in interceding, Christ is presenting, he is offering, he is appealing. And in all this, the object of his work once more, the one to whom he offers and please is the father. It is an act of intercession presented or offered to the father. But the question is, what does he offer and on what basis does he make his appeal Again, the question is simply, in what way is he interceding? And again, I'm dependent on Hugh Martin's work. So I might as well quote him here when he says, listen to this. The essence of intercession is atonement. The intercession by which we alone are saved, even to the uttermost, is just a perpetual presentation of the continual burnt offering of Calvary. As he stands there in heaven, all he is doing is saying, oh, father. Remember the work you sent me to do, to die on behalf of sinners. This is also evident when you compare what is said in verse 25 and verse 27. At first glance, we have uh, the statement of separate ideas. We read that he's able to save forever because he always lives to make intercession. And it would seem that our eternal salvation finds its basis in intercession. But then you look at verse 27 and you read that he does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It would seem at first glance on those two verses that our salvation is two bases. On the one hand, the intercession of Christ, verse 25, The eternal intercession in heaven. And on the other hand, verse 27, the cross of Christ. But let me just tell you that our salvation does not have two bases. But rather, our salvation has only one seen under two aspects. In reality, intercession and offering on the cross are but two aspects of a single work. A single presentation to the father by this priest. Each are seen as included in the other. So that in speaking of intercession, he refers to his act of offering and vice versa. Our salvation is seen in both because they are both aspects of a single work. Atonement seen as intercession. Intercession seen as offering for Christ to offer himself on the cross is for him to intercede for us and for him to intercede in heaven is for him to present to God what he did on the cross. The essence of intercession is atonement. And thus having made atonement once for all on the cross by offering himself, verse 27, all that is left for him to do is to present that work to the father. Again, not as a separate work, but as a continuation of the same priestly work. And not once more as an act of persuasion, but by the father's own appointment. The father in appointing the son to die is a lamb for sinners, Appointed his place in heaven whereby he continually presents the burnt offering of the cross. It is but an expression of his own will and desire. Jesus work on the cross so answers to all the things that pertain to God. His holiness, his justice, his desire to show mercy and pardon the sinner. Every demand of the law upon the sinner. Not only that he obey but that every transgression be punished. Christ so answers to all of these Everything that God demands and delights in that the father cannot but delight in the son's work, especially as antecedent to this. This is uh, this is in the there is in the father's heart nothing but a perpetual delight and love for the son. On him rests the father's good pleasure always. Just as the father reminds the son on his way to the cross twice, this is my beloved son in whom I am well Pleased. Father always delights in the Son. And the Father has nothing but love for the Son. Always. And for the Son to stand in heaven as our priest. Offering to the Father himself as our sacrifice continually. Is met with the Father's love and constant satisfaction. Again what we notice. Is the harmony between the father and the son in this work of intercession. By this work the father finds in this. Every reason to show mercy. To pardon the sinner. To express his love and desire to save. Bringing him into an eternal relation with himself. But bringing the argument home as fully as we can. Returning to the first part of verse 25. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. We see how it is that he's able to do so saving to the uttermost since the second part of the verse. He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. He does so. He saves forever. By holding his priesthood forever, ever presenting to the father his own work and his own sacrifice, meeting no resistance by the father, but only an eternal delight and good pleasure, which he has for the son. And to seek to draw near to God through him is to discover his ability to save to the uttermost. It is to discover the truth stated in these verses. There is in Jesus no lack. There is no weakness. There is no deficiency. Still less is there any reluctance on the part of the father to accept his work or those whom he represents. All that he does, he does perfectly and he does perpetually since he holds his office forever So we are able to draw near to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. Do you see the point, beloved? Have you discovered these wonderful truths about Jesus, our great high priest? I come back to the point I made at the beginning. As I close, that all our happiness as Christians depends upon this. Namely, having a clear view upon Christ and his priesthood. And as a result of this, our lives will be marked not by distance, but by Nearness to God, full of confidence and assurance and boldness to deal with the holy things of heaven because we are confident not in ourselves, but that Christ, our great high priest, has gone before us there and opened the way for us, standing there before the throne as our constant intercessor. He is always there. And as he is always there, he always stands ready to save. He always stands ready to help us. And he is able to save us to the uttermost. Oh, beloved, are you beginning to see the kind of priest we have in Jesus? And I can only thank God that we will go on in this study. Uh, but for now, we'll lay it aside and we will uh, come to the table. I'd invite the elders to join me there now. Well, as I keep saying, the Lord's Supper is is nothing uh, other than a, a pictorial form of what we're considering in Hebrews. It is a display of Christ's priestly work. What is Jesus doing? Now, we're going to see this even more clearly next time. What is he doing on the cross? He's offering himself for our salvation. Again, his life isn't being taken from him there. He is executing his office as a priest on behalf of sinners. And what he tells us. Uh, On the cross is what he tells us at the table, namely that salvation is found in his blood and in his broken body. And that alone is the hope of the believer. We find salvation in no other way, uh, nor do we have any desire to find salvation in any other way. We discover in Christ, and this will continue to be the theme, the best and the most glorious way to possibly approach God the Father so that we could not possibly want anything better than this. In fact, it even makes us and I believe I read this in Jonathan Edwards once. It even makes us thankful that God willed the fall, if only that he might will the cross. Amazing to think. But there is no possible better way to draw near to God than in this way. And that being said, we recognize our privilege uh, to partake of Christ in his priestly office uh, to deal with him and to recognize at the same time that he is dealing with us, that he continues to offer himself, not as a constant sacrifice, but in the same way he's constantly offering that one sacrifice to the father. So he's constantly offering it to us here and reminding us herein is the believer's salvation. In his body and in his blood. And so his salvation flows to the believer in so many ways. This is one of them. The question is, is that a salvation you want? Is that a salvation you partake of? Do you think that you can draw near to God in any other way as a sinner? That's it. There's the gospel. And it is presented to you as simply as a little piece of bread and a little cup of wine. Weak and contemptible in the eyes. I might say even more so than a man standing and preaching, though I doubt it. God is offering, he is ministering his grace to his people. Again, I ask you the question, is that your desire? It is so easy to despise these things. And in fact, we'll see uh, eventually when I read it in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that that's what the church was doing. The church was despising it. They believed in Christ for salvation, but they thought nothing of that. The truth is, we are to see Jesus Christ in that, just as we're to see him in the preaching. Or as I said in the prayer, we're to see him in our brother. If that's the kind of faith you have, it doesn't have to be great faith. But if you find Jesus, a strong reminder of Jesus in those things, then I invite you to come. Otherwise, I ask you not to. Let me read what is said in first Corinthians chapter 11, just the words of institution. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that that the Lord Jesus Christ in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when they had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He took the cup also uh, after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, And With that said let us pray together. Father in heaven we thank you for uh, these these weak and despised means in the eyes of the world In us they are very in our eyes they're very great In the eyes of a spiritual believer we find another token another emblem another seal of our salvation. God would you minister your grace to us more strongly this day through these many means and cause us to rise up to a full assurance of hope until the end uh, for we need a great deal of help we are weak we are ready to stumble we are ready to fall. We are we are practically apostate if we were honest. God, there is no there is no hope for any of us unless you uphold us by your grace through the power of the blood of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning then with the bread, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, as I'm ministering in his name, give this bread to you. Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And uh, just a reminder, though I think we're still ironing out. Uh, We've had different people setting up. Uh, We're still ironing out the details, but this time I can promise you that the outer ring is wine and then the inner rings are grape juice. There has been some surprise, I think, when the second outer ring was also wine, but that will not be the case this time. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. If you could just remember to take your cups and throw them away at the back when you're done. Uh, let us uh, sing together now in conclusion to our worship hymn 212. Receive now the blessing of the Lord and remind you as well, we'll have the class uh, maybe in five minutes, uh, the communicants class. But receive now the blessing of the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.